Our guest today is an award-winning non-binary writer, author, and executive producer. They are the brilliant mind behind the New York Times bestselling memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue, which provides a powerful window into their adolescent journey as a young Black queer individual growing up in New Jersey. As a former journalist, they have contributed their insights to major publications such as Teen Vogue, Entertainment Tonight, NBC, and BuzzFeed. Their work has been celebrated and recognized with the prestigious Salute to Excellence Award by the National Association of Black Journalists. In addition to their impressive literary achievements, our guest's influence extends beyond the written word. Notably, in 2022, they were honored as one of the Time 100 Next Most Influential People in the World, a testament to their global impact of their work. But it doesn't end there. Our guest has also made their mark as a fierce advocate for social change. They have utilized their platform to address vital issues of race, gender, and sexuality, amplifying their voices of those who've been marginalized and raise awareness on critical social justice matters. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming a multi-talented individual whose work continues to uplift and inspire countless lives, George M. Johnson. That was good. I'm like, I need to uh, send that to people. <laughs> I could send it to you after this if you want. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> Your journey as an author began with the memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue. Could you share with us a bit about your favorite childhood book and whether it played a role in sparking your passion for writing? Oh, man, my favorite childhood book. And um, if you hear stuff in the background, it's because it's Thanksgiving. And so we got to cook and we got we to gotta do the things we got to do. Um, my favorite childhood book there was a book series it was called like the uh, it's called like the Appleheads. it was kind of like a local i don't want to say a local author it was a new jersey author i believe though like we went to this book festival and it was like their own like goosebump series but it was like with these things called the Appleheads, and it was like this haunted things where they had like these Appleheads, and it was like a whole series and i had bought my mom bought me the whole series and i just loved the books like the books are so creative they were so cool um and all of those things uh but realistically like as a kid like the books we had to read were terrible we had to read like catcher in the rye we had to read like uh, sarah plain and tall and uh little women and like books that just didn't relate to me the applehead series kind of let me go into my imagination to to say like oh i can imagine worlds and kind of like be creative and write these things but i think it was like the fact that i had a disdain for books because i was forced to read books where i wasn't represented that i wanted to make books where i would be represented and so um it's like a twofold thing where it was like, I, I, I saw the creativity and the genius of certain people in books. It was like, oh, I want to be that creative. But then I also hated what I was forced to be forced to have to read and was like, I want kids to be able to read about themselves and read about other experiences and stuff. And I think that's what really led to me becoming an author and writing novels are blue and the books that I've written subsequently. All boys aren't blue has made a significant impact on readers from all walks of life. What inspired you to write this memoir and share your personal experiences growing up as a young black queer boy in New Jersey? Yeah, what inspired me to write the memoir? Um, I've been writing my story in bits and pieces for a long time. And, uh, but I was seeing that like, 
it felt like there was a shift happening, like where there was a lot more violence happening towards black queer kids and LGBTQ children in the country. The rate of homelessness for LGBTQ kids was around 40 percent. Um, LGBTQ kids who were experiencing suicidal ideations was up, I believe, around like 70 to 80 percent around the time when I wrote the book. And so, like, it was like the intersection of seeing all these things. And I was like, I want to put a story out there that gives them a roadmap. I didn't have a roadmap. I wanted to give them a roadmap. I want to give them something they could relate to, something that they could hold on to, something that could help them heal them, do all of the things to help them process what they're feeling, all the feelings that I used to have and 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 not be able to parse out because I didn't know what was going on. But now that I know what's going on, it's like you don't have to walk that same journey. And I wanted to put that into the book so that they didn't have to, so to speak, walk the same journey. Uh, that I had to walk. Um, growing up, <laughs> it was cool. Like, you know, um, like literally I'm sitting in my aunt's house right now, right? Like I um, grew up with a very big family, but a very loving family where um, even when I wasn't sure what I was, I was effeminate and I was different. Um, I was always accepted and it was always cool. And, you know, I was always supported. And I always had like these great memories of just like hanging out with like my Aunt Munch at, there's a pizza shop that's not far from here called Naples. And we used to go walk to Naples and catch up and just talk when I was a teenager. That was like our thing to do. And then earlier we were just talking about my Aunt Crystal and we would go to Munchies. It was another little place and she would get chicken wings and we would sit and hang with her. And then my mom's always been cool. Um, I was just hanging out with her last night. <laughs> and so um, growing up, I had those same experiences. And then I, we got to grow up with my grandmother, Nanny, who was just everything. And I used to be around her a lot. So I used to flea market with her. I used to play Rummy 500 with her till late in the night. Like she was just a really cool lady. Like she was a cool lady. I would say like she was a grandmother, but she was more than a grandmother. She was a friend. And she also just was like a really cool lady. And uh, she always had like these great stories um, about her childhood and like, chopping chicken heads off and like, just like stuff, like, you know, like that stuff that you just like, you did what? Like, she's like, yeah, that's what we used to do as kids, right? And so like, I grew up being a normal kid. I think that's really what what it was. I think like when it talk, when we talk about like what my experience was as a black queer kid, it was more so society where I had issues, issues with other kids, uh, you know, judging you and looking at you differently and everything. But I never had that at home. And so that was really like the the great thing for me was I always had a place to call home. Is there any specific instances where someone judged you for your identity? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I can think of one experience. Uh, there was like a scholarship I was supposed to get from the church and a friend of mine, who's still a friend of mine, her father, we went to the same church and her father, he just alluded to like certain things like I wasn't doing or like how I wasn't, I don't know, like, you know, but it was like, it, it, it felt thinly veiled. Like it felt like it was a veiled attempt at something. Like it was like, yeah, like, I get it. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? And like, and my mom and my grandmother were there for the church meeting when he said it and it just was like, what you said, we know what you're saying ain't true because like literally like I had a soup kitchen at the church. Like I, I, I did a lot of things for the church. So there was no questioning of like my work with the church. Um, but it was it was definitely like a thinly veiled like other issue that you just don't want to say out loud. 
type of thing, right? But my mom and them caught on and, you know, like they didn't play that. And so, you know, like I still got my scholarship and she still got hers and we're still friends to this day. Um, but that was like one of those moments. And then, you know, I think, you know, just growing up in barbershop culture, um, I still deal with it to this day. Like even, even a couple of years ago, I remember like one of the barbers came and apologized to me uh, like two years ago when I was out here because he, he had said the F word while we were at the barbershop. And sometimes I check it. Sometimes I'm just like, I don't have the energy. I just want to get my hair cut and get out of here. Um, but my barber said something to him. And then that night I happened to see him at the local lodge and he walked up to me and apologized. And so, you know, I, I think like there are still those moments that happen. Um, and, and it really is just like a picking and choosing of like, when do I want to be like super advocate today and super, you know, and then sometimes I'm just like exhausted. I'm like, all right, I'm still going through this. Like, I'm just going to leave, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it still happens. Like I, I remember moments of it happening when I was younger. It still happens to this day. But you know, I think I have a different mindset, tougher skin. So it's like it doesn't bother me as much as it would have bothered me back then. Your book was optioned for television by Gabrielle Union, which is so exciting. <laughs> what does it mean to see your story reach a broader audience? Yeah, it's super important. You know, when you write a book, and that's the thing, that's the thing, like, this was my first book, so I had no idea what publishing meant. I just was like, oh, I'm writing a book, right? And you write a book, and that's all you think. It's like, I'm writing a book. Uh, but now it's like, we're almost four years in. Um, the book's about to get its first United States paperback edition. Um, it already has a paperback edition in the United Kingdom that's done extremely well. Uh, it's in French, it's in Polish, it's in Korean, it's in Spanish, it's in Portuguese. Like there, are, like this, that means that this book has a global impact, right? In different languages, for different people to receive it, and different people to have those similar experiences of what it's like for me to be a black queer in America, elsewhere, and understand how those experiences intersect globally. Um, and then, like you said, reaching the new media market, which is television and film, that's that's huge because, you know, everybody's not a reader. Some people like audiobooks because that's how, you know, they, they, they learn through listening. Some people like ebooks, some people like regular books, but some people like television and film. They learn more through TV and film than they do from reading visual learners. And so it's amazing to be able to turn the book into something visual because now it, it does one bring about a new audience, but it brings about a new audience that I can educate and I can teach and I can help. And that's really what it is. It's like, I'm hitting the audience who, who learns through reading. I'm hitting the audience that learns through hearing. And now I will finally hit the audience who learns through viewing and visual. And that's really like a three pronged approach. Plus having it in multiple languages means that whatever we create here can have subtitles and go, elsewhere in the world and, and, and still give them that same thing too. Um, and so that's really what's amazing about it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for, for this story, this one little story from Plainfield, New Jersey, <laughs> now becoming this global thing that people uh, are invested in and want to know more about and, and, and want to continue to follow. One of your most notable achievements is receiving the Salute to Excellence Award from the National Association of Black Journalists for your article, When Racism Anchors Your Health, in Vice Magazine. Could you elaborate on the importance of journalism in addressing issues of race and social justice? 
Yeah, journalism is super important, uh, especially when it comes to race and social justice, because like we as especially as black writers, we don't have as many black publications as we used to. And so oftentimes, you know, we when we had our own publications, we could cover a lot more and go a lot deeper. Uh, but when you lose your own publications, you're kind of at the mercy and the will of a publication that is probably going to be more white led, more patriarchal. And so you kind of have to then like squeeze in your beats, right? Um, squeeze in the importance of talking about race and talking about gender and talking about the the other things that nobody wants to talk about. Uh, and so journalism is what continues to do that. And I think even taking a step further is like, you know, the great thing is that us as journalists, even when we can't get a story placed somewhere, because, you know, pitch it, rejection, rejection, rejection. You can either write it yourself on a blog or you can TikTok it and you can speak the story and you can IG reel the story and you can. Well, you used to be able to tweet the story, but um, but you can you have other outlets, like if there's a story that you want to tell now and you can't get it pitched anywhere, you can't get it written anywhere. You, us as journalists have other outlets now. And so that's the importance of journalism, because like we're not trapped to a newspaper we're not trapped to a publication we're not trapped to uh uh the normal standards of writing and how how those things have to work we can create our own visuals we can create our own things we can do our own storytelling through the use of our own platforms now uh and it reached the masses and so uh that's realistically the importance of journalism when it comes to this because a lot of these stories never got told and when you think about my people in particular, um, you know, it's like you 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 knew things were happening in the South and you knew you know of nefarious things that have happened when it came to police brutality, but you only know about what's been captured, right? And so it's like it's a saying like slavery was bad, but imagine if we knew everything that happened. Right. Because it's like we only know what was recorded and that was bad enough. But you have to then think about what wasn't recorded. That's the work of journalism. Right. What what didn't happen? What did we what what hasn't been captured? And us making sure we're capturing every single thing. Because it's like if you only capture two of the stories, the, 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 the most horrific stories, right, of police brutality or horrific stories of this thing, that's all you have, even though there were. 10 million slaves. So you know they all had a story of their experience, right? But we only have 6,000 realists, and this is real. We only have 6,000 stories. So it's like that. that is the role of journalism. And even now, like I'm uncovering stories, even in my own family, I am working to do that, uh, which will tell more stories from the past that should have been told already and should have been recorded already. I'm doing that work to record them now. And so that's the role that journalism still plays so we can still we still have ties to people who had who had ties to people from over 150 years ago. We can still do that work to keep telling those stories. All Boys Aren't Blue was banned in some places. Why do you think it was banned? I mean, my book is being banned because it tells the truth. My book is being banned because, uh, you know, it's interesting. It, it, the book holds a mirror up to people. And it's interesting because some of the people who have been trying to ban books claim that they're reformed from their queerness and it's like right because this book is what holds that mirror up to you to say like you can't just suppress that or you can't just get 
get rid of it. Like it, it exists and you have to address it and acknowledge it. And they don't want teenagers to be able to address it and acknowledge it. They want them to have to suppress it, lean into tropes of theological violence the same way they did. Um, and that's really what it is. Like our books and our books provide reflections of people. Our books provide resources for people. They provide windows into an experience which build empathy from people who have power. Even like, it's like the 17-year-old white classmate and the 17-year-old clear class, queer classmate who may be friends. That white classmate who knows they have privilege and reads my book will then know how to help their queer friend. They don't want that. They don't want that. They want you to not share your privilege, share your power, or do any of those things. That's what our books do. <laughs> they open up people to a new world or new experience that they may not have ever understood. My book is in like the most rural of places where you would never meet a queer person. So if you can't meet a queer person, you can at least meet one through the book. And that then shapes when you go out into the world, how you react and how you uh, appreciate how you interact with queer people, right? Because you only know what you know. And so if everything that you've ever been taught is fear mongering, and then you're able to get this book that changes everything for you, then it changes what this world looks like. And that's what they don't want. They want people to be fearful of queer people. They want people to be fearful of black people. And so as long as they can keep the narratives out of their hands that show who we are realistically uh, versus the picture that they have painted us to be, um, then they know that they've won their fight. And so that's why they're trying to ban the books because the books are books stand the test of time in a way that TV, radio, film haven't. Could you share with us any upcoming projects that you're excited about? Yeah, so my third book comes out um, September next year. It's called Flamboyance. It's on the Harlem Renaissance, so I'm excited about that. Uh, the paperback version of All Boys on Blue comes out in January. Uh, it has a new forward that I wrote for it, so I'm really, really excited about that. And people, and you know, paperback is a its own market, so it will hit a different market to people because some people only buy paperbacks so that'll be nice to start to hit a different market with that um i'm working on my first podcast so there will be some news about that coming soon uh i'm really really excited to 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 be able to talk more and interview and and showcase more people to the world and thoughts to the world um yeah, and then the TV and film stuff, you know, like we are still actively working on TV shows and, and things and adaptations for the books and everything. So everybody should stay tuned. It's going to be a big 2024. <laughs> Your second memoir, We Are Not Broken, received the Carter G. Woodson Award, recognized its portrayal of historically marginalized racial and ethnic groups. How does this work differ from your first memoir? And what messages do you hope readers can take away from it? Yeah, the second memoir was way more focused on like my grandmother, Nanny, her teachings, um, how we interpreted those teachings. And uh, I always say like that's my uh, Stand By Me, uh, which was the movie with the, the four little uh, white boys who went on their little own adventure together. I always say that's my version of that. It's like Stand By Me with four little black boys and their grandmother. And that's all it was. It was just about a woman who didn't want us to be boxed into the town we lived in the city we lived in the state we lived in she wanted us to see some world as they would say and she made sure that we saw some world and i think because she allowed us to explore in that way now 
you know, we we don't have a fear of traveling. We don't have a fear of doing different things. Um, you know, she would she was from the South and it was like we tried venison. We've tried. I've eaten rabbit. I've eaten frog. I've eaten and I've done all those things for her. And like she used to take us fishing and she used to like, you know, like it was that's what that book is about. It was like just about that intergenerational thing that happens in black communities. Um, when you have a grandmother who realistically uh, was just super protective, but super spiritual, super powerful, and just was a really, really cool person. Like she just was a cool person. And, um, and she didn't raise us under like gender norms. Like we cleaned, we, she taught me how to cook. I can cook really well. Um, you know, like all of those things that used to be what well, girls do that and boys do this. She never saw that. Like she, she was like, no, humans should know how to clean. Humans should know how to cook. Humans should know how to do these things. Like that's not a boy or a girl thing. And y'all gonna do everything. And she was big on education because she, you know, didn't get to finish high school herself. And so, you know, it just was about all of the wisdom she instilled in us. And, um, you know, I always say all boys on blue is like my story, the micro, and then we're not broken is the macro. That's my family story. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what, what that book is about. And, um, I'm glad I was able to put it in the world and I'm glad people are now starting to read it. You know, a lot of people read All Boys Aren't Blue and didn't know I had a second book because All Boys Aren't Blue sucks the oxygen out of the air. But people are now starting to be like, oh, wait a minute, there's another book. And they read and they're like, holy crap, like your grandmother, like she's so cool. So it's, it's been nice to see people like go on this journey with me through my family. Before we wrap up this interview, is there any final thoughts you have? Oh, final thoughts, you know, um, sorry, that's my aunt's dog biscuit, um, <laughs> making all the noise and snoring during the call. It's Thanksgiving. Um, Thanksgiving is one of those interesting holidays <laughs> because, you know, it was built as propaganda <laughs> in this country. It's one of those days about family. It's one of those days about soul foods, one of those days about care and just how we take care of each other, how we support each other, all of those things. But I think, you know, it's like we end up celebrating these holidays that typically have one meaning publicly versus what we know them to be privately. Um, and so I think that's what's important. Us making sure that the narrative of what these actual days, holidays, whatever it is, is uh that we put the truth out there and that's what our books do right like i always think about this holiday in particular because of a chapter i wrote in all boys aren't blue where as kids they make you sing this song this land is your land this land is my land and it's like well well no like that's actually that's actually not okay like no this land is your land like and it was your land and it should have never been my land, right? Cause you own this land. And, but that's really the story of Thanksgiving. Like, you know, y'all landed at uh, with Plymouth Rock and, and y'all spun the narrative like, oh, and we got along and we shared. No, you stole these people's land, right? Like, and so that's what is at the crux of the book bands. That's what's at the crux of what I do. Um, it's like, thank you for the free days off to celebrate with my family, but also we're gonna start to tell the truth. 
And I think that's it. We have to lean on truth and tell the truth about what these things are, how these things come to be, and how we can move forward as a society when we start to uh, unravel uh, everything that we have learned and we start to do that unlearning. And so, you know, maybe it is apropos that this interview is happening on Thanksgiving, which is a holiday that, that is very controversial in this country because we know the origins of it make no sense. And, uh, and that's okay, right? Ban this interview too. I don't care. But um, yeah, that's what I want to leave people with. Like, you know, just remember, like, it's okay to always tell the truth. It's okay for us to tell the truth and to fight with truth and to fight with facts. Um, the world is tough right now. And uh, this is not the time for us to cower to cowards, is what I always say. I will not, you know, cower in the face of cowardice and I will not cower to cowards. Um, and these people are cowards. As we conclude our conversation, we want to express our sincere appreciation for sharing your inspirational journey, insights, and dedication to amplifying diverse voices. Your work as a writer and advocate is a testament to the power of storytelling for positive change. Your courage in addressing challenges like the banning of All Boys Aren't Blue showcases your commitment to raising awareness and fostering inclusivity. Thank you, George M. Johnson, for your remarkable contributions to literature, advocacy, and social justice. Absolutely. Um, thank you. This was good. So I gotta pick up sweet potatoes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>